know, yeah. Naftali, I think you just described the opening to the um, the Serrano Files TV show, right? Robert De Niro runs with a giant chainsaw, taking wreaking <laughs> havoc on silos, right? silos <laughs> of, of you know, different kinds uh, of drained rolls. And this is perfect. Is that, There's going to be a lot of explosion here. Is that what it sounded like? Is that what I'm sounding like right now? Am I, am I sound like I'm running around with a chainsaw? <laughs> That's that's the story of my life right there. I know. I'm so almost that. ready. <laughs> <laughs> that's the story of all our life. Yeah. Oh man. You know, why don't we just get this podcast just go. going? Yeah, yeah, go. go, go. <laughs> <laughs> the people out there know already that we're we are not always a hundred percent, you know, on top of our game. I think that's why they could relate to us. You know, we're just exactly. not always. You know, we don't pretend to be more than what we are. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> welcome, everyone, uh, to the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association's official podcast, the Integrated Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Neftali Serrano, uh, the executive director of CFHA, and I'm here with my podcast uh, cohort colleagues, partners in crime. Um, I'll let them say hello to you. Deepu, say hello to everybody out there. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you're listening to us from. This is Deepu George from the sunny, warm Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. Everybody, and Jeffrey also... Ring. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> we also have Jeffrey Ring out there on the West Coast. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Um, greetings from Los Angeles. Good to be here. Well, um, we have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the integrated care workforce and um, some of the key challenges with developing that workforce. Um, so we're, we're going to launch into that here in a moment. Uh, just to start, though, we, we're just going to sort of, uh, you know, update you a little bit on our team and who we, who we are, where we are, because we know lots of you are still uh, getting to know us uh, as a podcast team. And so uh, you should note that Grace Wilson is not with us. She's usually on uh, with us uh, on the podcast. She's not, unable to be with us today. And Amber Gordon uh, is also not able to be with us. So it's just going to be the three guys today. Um, so we'll be a little bit male heavy here, unfortunately. Um, so, but you should be able to hear Grace and Amber on future podcasts coming up soon. In fact, guys, uh, the thing I was thinking about because we're we're recording this uh, towards the end of September. And our next podcast is coming up kind of quick in just, I think it's 19 days. Uh, it might be 19, 20 days, something like that. Uh, because we're going to be recording live at the annual conference of uh, uh, CFHA in Rochester, New York, and uh, meeting there together. So uh, those of you who are listening and attending the conference, um, uh, later on in this podcast, I'll tell you when. I've got to actually look it up here. I'll tell you what time we're, we're going to be recording. And if you want to come by and say hello to us, um, we're happy to give high fives and say hello to uh, our listeners who attend the conference there in Rochester, uh, New York. So um, just by way of quick reintroduction of who we are here, um, DP, why don't you remind people who you are and where you're from and what you do and why the heck you're doing a podcast? <laughs> All right, I will uh, do my best. Uh, my name is Deepu George. I am currently 
an assistant professor of family medicine where I serve as the behavioral science faculty and also lead the efforts for integrated behavioral health for uh, the School of Medicine here. We've been making headway for the past few years with uh, community partners. Um, Jeff Ring was actually recently in our area uh, where he met some of the partners that help us uh, do the work that we do. Uh, I believe that we are headed uh, in a direction of uh, culture of whole health. And I believe that the integrative behavior health or all of us with our skill sets are important assets to the primary care system. And the reason I do the podcast is so I can be part of the national conversation uh, to push our identity, our uh, mission, and uh, hopefully educate, inform, and, you know, from time to time, entertain people as they learn with us. That's right. That's right. And one thing that you should know about Deepu that I deeply admire is his sense of style. You all can't see him right now. I can because we're Skyping as we record this here. He's got this sharp looking UT Health Rio Grande Valley polo shirt with an Adidas logo on the right side. No, Adidas right. is not a sponsor, but we would love to have Adidas sponsor us. Uh, so he's 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 looking sharp today as always. Something to admire you, from sir. an integrated care professional. I appreciate that. And then we've got Jeffrey. Jeffrey on the West Coast. Jeffrey, you have an interesting life, so just let people know what you do and how interesting you are. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a high bar. Um, I am a health psychologist uh, and a healthcare consultant. I work for this national firm, Health Management Associates. It's a firm dedicated to improving healthcare delivery for underserved and vulnerable populations. And, and that um, objective, that mission has really been um, what's been fueling my, my career and my work. So, so I do projects in, in, in four major areas, um, uh, taking on health inequities and health disparities, um, uh, in part through uh, improving medical education. Um, I'm a leadership coach, so I, I love to work um, on improving uh, high-functioning teams and enlightened uh, leadership, uh, and particularly for those working in underserved communities and, and also with um, minority uh, physicians and practitioners themselves who are facing all the challenges and pressures um, layered even more deeply with racism and sexism and heterosexism. I do a lot of work in wellness and vitality and self-care and taking a um, sort of a crushing wrecking ball to cynicism. Um, and then finally, um, behavioral health integration, really weaving a beautiful tapestry of whole person care that attends to mind and body and social and spiritual all together, which is really what brings uh, us together shoulder to shoulder in this very cool, cool podcast. Yes, and I, I have the privilege of, of uh, working with these gentlemen um, and, uh, my brief introduction is pretty simple. I'm the executive director, obviously, of this association. Our association works to, um, promote integrated care as a standard of care for all. And our goal is really to bring behavioral health and medicine together to promote whole health. And we define behavioral health very broadly. That can be, um, really anything related to mental health. It can be anything related to a person's medical health and the behavioral aspects related to that, including things like social determinants of health, um, community status, um, uh, just all the pieces that promote health in an individual's life. Uh, that is what we are trying to make sure becomes a part of the standard of the provision of healthcare here in the United States. So 
um, I have the privilege of leading members um, uh, who are working in this area, many of whom work, as Jeffrey noted, in underserved settings, which is a, also a passion of mine, as my career prior to being executive director has really been spent mostly doing this kind of work in primary care, um, really providing integrated care in these settings, um, in particularly underserved settings. So. Um, that's a little bit about us. Now, a little bit about context, guys. So one of the things that keeps happening, and I don't know if it's just a sign of our times, is we have these podcasts at critical junctures in American history. And I don't know if there's just more critical junctures in American history, but I, I just feel as if we have to, we're not going to talk about it today, but I feel like we, I just feel responsible somehow for providing context to the fact that, yes, we're recording at a time in which um, there's some really big stuff happening in our country, <laughs> um, particularly related to the uh, Kavanaugh hearings and all of that, and women's uh, uh, issues, the Me Too movement, etc. And I, I, I think I partly want to say that because it's on my brain, but also as a way of acknowledging we're not ignoring these contexts Um but we also are not a political show. We're not going to try to explore these issues, except as, as they relate to um, issues of healthcare. And, and at some point, we may need to talk about um, the Me Too stuff in relationship to what patients are presenting with in our setting and some of the political um, ramifications of how this um, unease in our country is sort of presenting in our healthcare settings. Um, but I just wanted for the listeners out there just to let them know that we, we're aware of the context. We're aware of the world we live in. And, um, and we'll, we'll talk about all these things as they, as they relate to healthcare for sure. Um, I, I was particularly uh, struck by this, I think, because I was in Washington, D.C. yesterday um, I'm based out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but I was in Washington for a conference at the Kaiser Permanente Institute for Health Policy and um, uh, just a few miles away from where all this was going. And the tension in the city was palpable uh, for sure, as I'm sure it was uh, all over. So I don't know if you guys want to just briefly, you know, just sort of comment about the feeling of being in that sort of context and all that, or you just want to move on. Your, your choice, guys. Well, I'll just bookmark that this is an important conversation, conversation. Um, and, and um, particularly how we uh, work together collaboratively across gender um, in our teams, in, not only with patients, but um, really what are the power dynamics and the respect dynamics and communication dynamics that are impacted by um, our similarities and our differences. Yeah, I would uh, echo Jeff's uh, thoughts there as well. Uh, we should talk about uh, the I guess not the political in terms of partisan politics, but the politics of gender norms and what is appreciated, not appreciated, what is privileged and not privileged in uh, healthcare settings. Uh, that would be an interesting conversation. And I, I think it is important to integrated care and the work that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will bookmark that conversation. Uh, for now, we will let the countries. Uh, stuff be it the country's stuff. So uh, uh, let's move let's on move now on. to our news and notes. Uh, let's cue the music.
Alright, for our news and notes today, we're going to have Jeffrey Rank give us some important news related to the world of integrated care. Jeffrey? Thank you. I just wanted to alert uh, everyone's, draw everyone's attention to a um, uh, kind of a, it looks, it's like an article or a blog post by Michael Friedman from New York on MedPage Today. He titles his uh, article, um, The Mental Health Apocalypse Starts Now. Gaps in our mental health system. Um, uh, sorry, gaps in our mental health system um, spell doom. So this is not a particularly peppy way to begin our conversation, but I think it's a reality-based way. And uh, what he lists at the beginning are, I think, what we know, but there's something about the power of this um, framing of the apocalypse um, that's essentially important. He reminds us of that 60% of people um, with diagnosable mental disorders don't get treatment. And if they do get treatment, it's often inadequate. And if there is treatment, um, it's often inaccessible, particularly to um, underserved uh, communities and those without resources. Um, of those who do get treatment, one in three get even minimally adequate treatment, and that treatment services can be so fragmented. He reminds us that this is essentially, uh, this is about life and death. He reminds us that people with serious mental illness die 10 to 25 years younger than the general population, that mental challenges are linked to homelessness, that the weave with our justice system and our jails and our prisons um, is, uh, is, is quite um, uh, terrifying. He reminds us about uh, suicide and opioids and, and everything that is uh, harsh and challenging in people's uh, lives for them and their families is on the rise. Um, and then he ends on this list of uh, doom and gloom that there are um, uh, workforce shortages. And so I, I hope that this frames and deepens uh, the importance of the conversation that we're going to have specifically on that on that last point. Usually we can count on Jeffrey to, to uplift us and give us inspiration. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's th those are the those are the realities. Deepu, you also had a quick news and note today. Yeah, I think uh, what I want to share uh, can be contextualized within what Jeff just talked about. Uh, there is a, uh, a blog called The Healthcare Blog, and it sort of talks about making healthcare a consumer biz. Uh, uh, there's a, a chronic care management platform called Livongo, and it's an opinion and interview with him about the future of healthcare. And I think part of the elements that Jeff just mentioned about our fragmented healthcare system in terms of accessibility, affordability, and being able to see uh, and, and be aware of what you need as you go through the different illnesses. What uh, the blog really calls for, or the interview, is the, basically they're framing healthcare as an information exchange business, and we should treat it like any other business. Uh, and I think. Uh, being informed about public health, uh, social determinants of health, uh, the fragmented nature of a healthcare system, and just knowing how human behavior and health functions over time, I would encourage people to read it and make their own judgments. Um, I'm of the idea that health is a public good and it's a basic access point for all people and good standard whole person-centered care should be accessible to all. Um, and not based on purchasing power that few people have. Um, but it's an interesting uh, thing to juxtapose with 
uh, all of the things that we're trying to do to promote uh, whole person-centered healthcare in access points that we have within our communities and other clinical settings. Great, and we will make sure to put that link up in the podcast notes for sure. Um, you know, I, 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 to Jeffrey's point before, I hadn't planned on necessarily uh, bringing this up, but um, I was at this Kaiser Permanente conference yesterday, and it was on workforce development in mental health, um, and there was plenty of gloom and doom there as well uh, about it. But it, the context gives you at least some markers uh, to highlight this issue. This is just in general for for uh, behavioral health, not specifically for integrated care. But they contextualize the problem as a dual problem. There's a problem that demand has gone up. Uh, one of the aspects that spurred demand is actually higher insurance rates. So the Affordable Care Act increased access to mental health, at least from a payment standpoint, from an insured standpoint. Um, and then there's a decrease in supply. In other words, a decrease in uh, the folks who are providing mental health services, in part because the workforce is aging. Um, uh, so we are getting older and older. It says the statistics they put out say that 57% of all acti actively practicing psychiatrists, for example, in the United States are older than 55 and likely to retire within the next five to 10 years. Like that's more than half there. And then they give a bunch of these statistics on the actual shortages that they project um, based on uh, 2025 projections. And for example, the projections for the um, uh, lack of psychiatrists in the country will be about uh, 15,400 psychiatrists fewer than are needed to meet demand in the country. For psychologists, it's 57,490 fewer psychologists and are needed. And same is true for all of the other mental health professionals, marriage and family therapists, for example, 10,470 fewer than needed to meet demand. So uh, it's a big issue, and that's why we're going to be talking about it today. That's our news and notes section. So that gives us an obvious segue to what we're talking about. Here we're talking about the aspect of the workforce related to integrated care and what's needed to build that workforce, right? And there's a bunch of issues involved with that. It would seem to be a simple issue. Hey, we just need more professionals to do this. Um, but things get in the way. So gentlemen, I want to start off with your experience and your understanding of what's happening in the field related to what gets in the way of us building an integrated care workforce. Oh, <laughs> we're, we're passing the hands here. I'll start, I guess. <laughs> um, I think uh, getting uh, people trained and putting them in the workforce area, that was probably a good idea and good solution when we started off, but I think as we have matured as a field and continues to grow, we realize that other uh, issues sort of creep in and the confusing language around who the mental health provider is or who the behavioral health consultant is and what do they do. And ultimately figuring out that the primary care team is melding together and we are part of that team. Uh, my background is I have a master's in counseling psychology from India finished my training in family therapy at the University of Georgia. And then I did uh, an integrated care and medical family therapy training in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. And I 
primarily work in a primary care behavioral health uh, environment that we've created here. So I've sort of uh, searched my identity throughout and then sort of found myself knocking on different doors and not really figuring out where I fit. And I think CFHA was a welcome space for me to sort of wrestle with those things and figure out what matters. And today, in the last two years, one of the transformation that's really given me peace at heart uh, and given me the sort of crosshairs through which I can make my decisions for our team, uh, for our strategy here, is understanding primary care and sort of locating myself as a primary care team member. Um, and as I traverse through this, I think we begin to see all the workforce development challenges, shortages, um, um, maybe specializations or hyper-specialization conversations that become part of the conversation. So that's sort of where I am and how I've sort of navigated uh, to where I am today. As you're talking, Dupu, it makes me think about how um, you know, what, one missing piece in being able to attract people to our profession is like our profession's rather invisible actually like we don't there's no health psychologist who's you know has this tv show or is a movie superhero the work that we do is rather hidden it's behind the scenes it's very quiet and if you weave that together with you know what has kind of been a whole sort of um, stigma culture of mental health of certainly being a patient and perhaps maybe even being a you know you're crazy if you're a shrink or something like that um i'm not sure that we've done a very good job in telling the story about what, what you were just saying, Deepu, this incredibly meaningful and gratifying and fulfilling and impactful work that um, is shoulder to shoulder um, in the most interesting of settings, right? We have behavioral health people working in oncology, in emergency rooms, in inpatient hospitals, certainly in outpatient and ambulatory clinics, in um, all across the, the land. And I think, especially those of us who've worked in training programs in like say family medicine or primary care training programs where we also have a teaching function um, we, we, we um, really can develop our own leadership our voice of being sort of the um, ethical eyes and ears on how healthcare is delivered so how are we doing in telling that story to young aspiring trying to find their career path um, uh, you know high school students and, and college students yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've thought for a while that um, it would be awesome just to have like uh, in the I think it was the 60s or 70s. There's a show called Emergency um, and it, it highlighted basically the work of early um, emergency medicine uh uh, providers. So at that time, uh, emergency medicine was a, an emerging specialty um, in medicine. And uh, that at least is one of the things that can be credited with spurring on uh, the sort of role and status of emergency medicine as its own thing within medicine. Um, before that, you know, you had uh, literally, you had psychiatrists, medical students, uh, internal medicine physicians, family practice docs, staffing an emergency room. And it wasn't a specialty um, until the 60s and 70s when uh, it became clear that specialization um, was necessary for that particular area of medicine. And it would be cool, wouldn't it be cool to, to have a show, a TV show, movie, series that highlighted... Um, or at least included these these folks, almost like a 
the behavioral health consultant on Grey's Anatomy, you know, uh, right. you know, and we can files. all, yeah, right. Yeah, right. It'd, be, <laughs> it'd be cool to just think about who would play us on those shows, you know, I mean, I could see uh, maybe like De Niro playing me, um, you know, it's, it's, no. Uh, that's getting too far afield, but but you get what I'm saying. I agree, with Jeffrey, that part of it is is an advertising thing and a marketing thing that we haven't put ourselves out there, especially early enough, because that's part of the workforce issue. There's not um, a lot of folks early early on making decisions to come into the mental health workforce in general because there's issues with pay and other things like that. But in particular, coming into the workforce as um, uh, with the intention of being part of the healthcare system in this particular fashion, which is really different than coming into mental health with the intention, for example, of working in your own private practice. Those are right. really two different cultural identities. I know that's one of the things we talked about with this workforce issue. Um, and in fact, Deepu, you, you addressed some of this in your interview that we'll be playing later on with uh, Tina Runyon, the president of CFHA. Right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that piece, Deepu, about the cultural identity piece? Because that's part of your story. I know it's part of my story as well. How we sort of, our, our identity changed when we got into primary care and we became part of something different that was different than the letters behind our name. Yeah, I, I think uh, actually Tina Runyon also has a presidential column in Family Systems and Health uh, issue this uh, year or this month. And it talks about Integrated primary care could play a starring role in Amazon, J.P. Morgan, uh, Warren Buffett healthcare enterprise. And in that, uh, Atul Gawande is quoted saying that we physicians are trained, rewarded, and hired to be cowboys. And what the individual clinician says is what goes. We're not trained, rewarded, or hired to be team uh, members of teams or members of teams. And I think that may be true for the mental health model of training as well. We typically think about working by ourselves. We typically manage our own uh, patient list and how we do therapy and you know how long we get to see them and et cetera, other than insurance mandates and other things. Uh, but I think that the transition point is to sort of uh, holding on to all of those things and then coming to the primary care environment and then beginning to realize the stronger you hold on to these things the less effective you are. So you sort of let the culture of primary care melt away the assumptions that you came in with. And I think the the other challenges, I, I think we talked a little bit about in the interview, is recognizing for the physician team or the medical assistant or the nurse practitioner, they're not too sure about the nitty gritties of uh, licensed psychologists versus LMFTs versus LCSWs or LPCs, or they see a behavioral health provider, um, and they're not aware of the guild issues. They're not aware of uh, sort of like the ongoing battles within our circles, right? Because and that doesn't need to be brought on to the primary care floor as such. Um, I am an LMFT. One of my colleagues is a licensed psychologist who, who's the other BHC here. And it doesn't matter how the, uh, the residents or the faculty see us. Um, so when you're there, whether you're an MD, DO, PA, NP, um, PhD, masters, the patients need to be seen. They need to be given an experience of a whole person experience of their health care. And hopefully by working together, we reduce the idea 
that the patient goes home with that their mind and body is separate, right? And so um, we talk about that in the interview. The other thing that I also say is we are so new, uh, and Jeffrey talking about how we are silent, a newness to the healthcare system. The, our desire is to be a strong part of the team. We sort of talked about this in the warm handoff uh, controversy podcast. And I think if we stick to that value, I think, and sort of do the hard work of saying this is where we want to be, I wonder if that can be a, a platform to really think cross-culturally about our uh, guild-related is guild issues and be co-advocates for the, the larger issues, but at the same time, uh, focus on becoming effective team members with skills that are needed. Ooh, I have a well, question for the two of you. What about, um, have you heard this um, mnemonic, H-A-T-S, uh, hire for attitude, train for skills? What do you think about that? Like, who yeah, should we be cool. training? Um, do, is that, um, is yeah. that uh, a, like a that. good way to go? Yeah. I, I, like I think that. it's, that's a perfect uh, thing for what we're, what we're talking about. I yeah. wish we had hats. We could wear them, and, and <laughs> but but I, I you know what we're finding in our big um, Inland Empire Health Plan Behavioral Health Integration Project out here in uh, east of Los Angeles, um, it really is about who the person is. It really is about their sort of emotional intelligence and their relationship skills and their all-in attitude to do everything possible they can to help these complex patients get what they need and become uh, ever better as um, self-managers. So um, there, there's one of the clinics we work with, um, Desert Pain, that their uh, head physician says he, um, for, the, for the, at least the frontline staff, he only hires people who in the past have worked as, uh, uh, in the service industry as waiters and waitresses, that they've learned really quickly, he has observed, to build a relationship and make eye contact and work for tips and you know, customer satisfaction. Um, so... Um, Hey, that, so, that's good. So anyway, yeah. That's good. Tra I would say that's good training for for BHCs and other integrated care professionals as well. Being a waiter or waitress is awesome experience <laughs> to, to be aware of the people in front of you and the team behind you. Right. That's right. <laughs> the, yeah. The yeah. bus staff, the cook, the chef, the flow and all that kind of stuff. That's a great analogy. I love that. Yeah, this is um, a little bit of a foray, but um, we were uh, heading to a restaurant, and um, I don't know why. We were just a very needy family that day. Everybody wanted something special, something different, something you know that wasn't on the menu. And the server that we had kept saying, I can make that happen. That's not a problem. We can do that. I'll get that for you right away. Like, you know what a huge tip? <laughs> do you know how happy? And I had two little kids. I mean, that kind of attitude in healthcare when you're facing especially daunting challenges that wreak havoc in your emotional wellness and balance and home and safety and family, can we import that? And, yeah. um, and, and to what degree is it trainable, which I think it is. I think empathy is yep. trainable. I believe that um, emotional intelligence is trainable. We can learn that. But it certainly is fantastic when we start with this prima materia of someone who is uh, all in and, and wired to, to give and help and support. Well, and, and to tie that, that wonderful analogy in to what we're talking about with workforce, um, the, the patient, when they come to the healthcare setting, really has no or very little interest in the letters behind the name of the individual. Right. They're going to make their judgment about 
the capacity of that individual to help them based on what they experience. Just like yep. with that waiter, we don't go to a restaurant and, you know, care what, you know, degree the waiter has. We're just going right. to judge based on those things. Do they make eye contact? Are they open, asking the right questions? Um, are they attentive? Uh, do they, are they responsive? And yep. uh, I think I think cultivating that is really in stark contrast, unfortunately, to what happens in our professional and cultural identity uh, development early on, where we are acculturated into a, a guild and and then have to sort of unlearn that when we come into a team based setting, because in the yeah. team based setting, especially now in healthcare, our job is and, and I say our because. I don't just mean the mental health professional, but I mean on the medical side, the the the, the medical assistant, the RN, the dietitian, uh, the promotora, the peer support specialist. That team has to have an identity of us, and we call it in the biz, everybody working to the top of their license. And one of the things that, that I think people don't quite get about working to the top of their license is that it's not just that everybody in their silo works as effectively and efficiently as they can. What top of the license actually means is that everybody works at such a high degree as a team that they develop overlapping skills so that the physician right. is, is better at managing behavioral health conditions and the behavioral health person is better at managing and co-managing medical conditions. And the behavioral health professional is also capable of doing care management. And the promotoras are also helpful at uh, doing behavioral health intervention and understanding medical conditions, et cetera, so that the team floats its competencies together to the top. And that is what we're talking about with regard to this attitudinal shift of really blurring the guild boundaries in such a way where it no longer matters as much what the letters are as much as the function that you serve to your point right. dpu when your physicians turn to the behavioral health person they're not saying oh this time i'm going to turn to the lmft versus right. the psychologist i mean they're not thinking that and the patient's not thinking that either and that's what that's at least the way i conceptualize top of the license you know, yeah. Naftali, I think you just described the opening to the um, the Serrano Files TV show, right? Robert De Niro runs with a giant chainsaw, taking wreaking <laughs> havoc on silos, right? silos <laughs> of, of you know, different kinds uh, of drained roles. And this is perfect. Is that, There's going to be a lot of explosion here. Is that what it sounded like? Is that what I'm sounding like right now? Am I, am I sound like I'm running around with a chainsaw? <laughs> I, I, I'm just, you know, I, I mean, I'm just uh, five minutes from Hollywood, so I'm I'm, I'm working on your uh, second career. Here, so. <laughs> That's what we need to do. We just start, we just start. We need to start brainstorming this script, and uh, start right. uh, start doing some pitches to some of uh, Jeffrey's Hollywood friends. That's right. And you all can't see because it's podcast, but Neftali does have his uh, superhero uh, T-shirt on today. So <laughs> right. thank yes. you for dressing, the, getting the wardrobe right. Uh, now yes, we'll work on uh, makeup and hair. Uh, it's it's a it's a flash shirt uh, for for those of you out there. So it's my one of my favorite shirts actually. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. Can I say one more thing, Deepu? Um, yeah. 
Um, I'm missing um, uh, Grace and Amber today, and I, I have a feeling that, um, and I'm, I'm making this up, but if, if I were to channel them in particular, I think that they might say something about, like, um, it's hard to know about this field or how to do it, because even if you're in a behavioral health training program, like, are, the faculty aren't necessarily ready to roll with this. They haven't necessarily done this themselves. Um, you know, are, 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 are we still training psychologists and clinicians in a traditional 50 minute hour of, you know, sitting down together in an office that's, you know, has a plant and a, you know, a sofa or something like, you know, where, where, where does the exposure really happen and the inspiration and the role modeling? I think that that you sort of uh, bring me to my point as well. That's that all of us are trained in that model, and I think there are very few that are coming out with exposure through internships and other things. So I think a key critical skill that helps us go beyond the guild is to sort of really say, I'm willing to unlearn to learn new skills. Right? I'm going to keep some of the core things that I know, uh, but part of becoming a primary care team member, whether it's a behavioral health consultant, behavioral health provider, whatever it may be, is to sort of say, I'm going to unlearn some of the things that I've learned. I'm going to pick up some new things. And I'm going to be just like my PCP colleague or my nurse practitioner, who's actually going home and reading stuff every day uh, to look up patients. They're, you know, they're updating their knowledge on a daily basis, which is probably not something traditional mental health really talks about um, or uh, encourages, on, you know, in a systematic way like they would do in medical school or residency training. And, you know, Gawande also talks about, and Tina talks about it in her article, where he uses the the uh, the metaphor of pit stops, uh, like uh, or what are they called? Uh, like that systems. They, he talks about pit crews, not pit stops. The pit crews that we need to write really. Didn't uh, you spend change. some time in North Carolina to get the uh, race car <laughs> analogy straight? Yeah. Yes. It might See, be that I'll... you need to. You might be that you need to stick to uh, food analogies. <laughs> Actually, I did think of a chef analogies. Like if you're working in a. <laughs> If you're used to working in a high five-star Michelin star restaurant, and then you su suddenly come to like a Five Guys or an In-N-Out burger joint, then you better, you know, whip up new skills and unlearn some of the finer things that you learn in your five-star area <laughs> to come here. <laughs> Even if you're part of a pit crew or a five-star versus Five Guys, I think a couple of things is critical, right? She says yeah. team teamwork is key. There are shared goals. Uh, communication technology has to be optimized. So the BHCs and other professions coming into that. And then we have to look at data to look at the improvements what we need and speed. You know, that's one of the things that we find challenging. Um, I think uh, Jeffrey talks about, uh, talked about the velocity that is needed to do the slow work, but in a fast way, uh, a few uh, conversations ago. Uh, so whether you're a chef or a member of a pit crew, uh, just make sure that you're adapting to the environment that you're in. Pit stop restaurant, perfect for getting some uh, greasy food. Oh, <laughs> man. Sorry That's about great. that. Couldn't That's help great. It. Yeah, I know you couldn't help it, Jeffrey. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, one of the other things that I, I will say, and the things that I, one of the things that I think about uh, within CFHA, um, uh, 
pretty deeply is this issue of the guilds and their roles in all this because we do have some some issues at times as we come together as an association and folks uh, on the one hand want to do this integrated care thing on the other hand there is this real pull and tug from their guild identities and i don't know that i have a perfect answer to all of that but um i think it's worth mentioning that i think um when you when you transition into this new identity, this team identity, for those of us in primary care, it's our primary care identity. But it, it extends really to any team you're working in, right. whether you're in an oncology clinic, whether you're in a hospital setting. You know, it's really about adopting that team identity and allowing yourself to mold in there. And by the way, I think one of the wonderful side effects of our work in behavioral health integration is that as we model that sort of letting go of our identity and our adoption of a team identity, we begin to model things for the team that right. other members of the team begin to emulate and appreciate and begin to shape their behavior around that. And I have seen that personally in my career and in clinics and organizations that because of behavioral health integration, even though it's it's focused on creating access to behavioral health care and providing care to patients, it's actually been transformative for the organization to rethink how they do care teams, to rethink how they hire professionals, not just in the mental health realm, but in those other realms, medicine, medical assistants, front desk staff, et cetera. They begin to do that hats thing that, that Jeffrey talked about, right? So, yeah. you know, I think on the one hand, I want to respect the fact that if you are coming from a particular uh, uh, guild identity and background, just as if you were to come from a particular cultural identity and background that you want to appreciate those things and that you can import those in. Um, on the other hand, I personally struggle with holding on to those things in such a way that, um, that really works to separate yourself out and, and that runs counter to this team identity. I don't get that part. And I've, I've spoken to too many mental health professionals in different guilds who are holding on so tightly to who they are, um, to those letters behind their name, to the training that they have, that it gets in their way of really promoting the true good distinctives that they might bring to the table. Um, because they're not, they're not first saying, I'm part of the team. And that's what's most important here and I bring this particular unique perspective as a social worker, as a MFT, as a psychologist, as a dot, 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 you know? Right. And, and that, that part I really struggle with. One of the ways that we've been working with teams to be effective in integrated care is through coaching, a coaching relationship. And um, part of that coaching is about um, sort of how to find the words to say new things that seem so taboo, Right. So we have these um, standardized caseload reviews where the care coordinator and the nurse care manager, um, uh, the behavioral health clinician, actually have some ideas about whether or not the hypertension medications are optimal. And in the standardized caseload review, you know, all bets are off. Everybody is supposed to bring the best of what they know um, and can suggest to treatment. And for the care coordinator to be able to say to the physician, 
Um, would you be willing to reconsider or look at or reevaluate the medication regimen for the hypertension or the diabetes? Like that is stratospherically far and impossible. But with coaching, it's not impossible. It's another way to help the patient. And you know what the physicians say after the first time when their eyes get huge? The second time they're like, whoa, thank you for reminding me about that. I have 800 patients and I haven't seen this patient for a long time and I did not realize that this is a not optimal sort of management. Mm. So, um, you know, it's a lovely weave of, uh, of new skills and communication, but it's also so much about um, uh, confidence and competence and self-talk about um, all roads leading back to um, you know, helping patients. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, uh, there's a concept called holy envy, and this is sort of looking at interfaith and interreligious kind of dialogue. And it's the idea that uh, when we look at other faiths and, and the beauty that they bring to the table, we should be envious to and inspired to to model that, learn that, be curious about that. And I wonder if there's a certain amount of uh, holy envy that can be infused into integrated care environments where there's a deep sense of curiosity and psychological safety where the medical assistant is empowered uh, to call on a, a behavioral health clinician and a physician at the same time. We had that conversation here in clinic a few weeks ago, one of our new MAs did not know, she always thought she had to go to the physician first if there was an elevated PHQ-9 or any distress while they were rooming the patient. And then we sort of worked with her, a resident and, and myself, we had a conversation. In, in the last two weeks, she's been uh, hitting up the BHCs much before she goes to the PCP and letting the PCP also know, sort of creating that loop. Uh, but, you know, I think she feels safe. Uh, and she is beginning to take a bigger identity to her role. Um, so hopefully we can be, uh, we can demonstrate some holy envy and uh, curiosity amongst ourselves. Yeah, holy envy, curiosity, and gratitude appreciation, right? High-functioning right. teams are those teams that say, holy smoke, what you did for that patient was extraordinary, and I have seen the benefits of that. Or what you just reminded me of, I'm grateful. It's going to improve the care. We get so lost in productivity demands and in the harshness and politics that um, that that mindful presence of appreciation of the collaboration gets lost. And without it, um, you know, we we, we we're going to stumble more than we're going to run. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we haven't spoken as much today about uh, necessarily about the medical side of things. We've focused a lot on building up the mental health workforce or the behavioral health workforce within medicine. But there is also this other side of really preparing our medical colleagues um, for this work. And that was in large part the topic that you discussed with Tina Runyon, DP. So, I'm hoping you can sort of lead us in into that interview um, sure. and, and a little bit about what, why, hey, this is not just about building up a mental health workforce. Right. I think uh, I was aware of the mental health workforce shortage, but I, as I step into residency settings and work with uh, physicians who've been in the game for a long time, there's this amount of retraining and invitation that we have to give to our primary care colleagues too, and that's hard work. Um, and 
Tina Runyon and her colleagues at UMass, they have been doing incredible work uh, on integrated care in general, but they've been specifically focusing on developing curriculums and other things for uh, physicians that are in training. Uh, she also talks about uh, postdoc trainings for mental health folks, but I think a conversation that's beginning to happen uh, throughout uh, at least the circles that I'm involved in is undergraduate medical education focusing on PCBH or ideas of integrated care or interprofessional education. Uh, I had a medical student uh, talk to me last week saying, I have an elective month, can we do it with you? Uh, and so they want to just do the BHC kind of work that we do. Um, so I think the attitude is shifting. So the interview really focuses on uh, uh, Dr. Runyon's journey with the whole process and her advocating, again, in a non-guild way uh, for clinician wellness um, and not just physician wellness or MA wellness, but sort of saying anybody who is a clinician needs wellness and we, we got to focus on that as a team. Excellent. Well, without further ado, let's cut to Deepu's interview with Dr. Tina Runyon. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening to this podcast from. Welcome to the special segment interview. I'm very privileged and lucky to have Dr. Tina Runyon with us. She is the current president for Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, and she's also a clinical associate professor and behavioral science director for Worcester Family Medicine Residency at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. That's like the basic intro. So I'm gonna let Dr. Runyon uh, say hello and tell us a little bit about herself and her experience. Thanks, Deepu. Um, so good morning, good afternoon, good evening, I guess as well to all the listeners. And uh, I'm very um, uh, honored to, to be here for this interview. Uh, I currently am the, um, president of CFHA, which has uh, has been really an exceptional experience the last two years um, transitioning out, and Andy Valeris will take over as the president starting in January, but I've had the opportunity to really see um, pretty meaningful, uh, not just transition, but transformation of CFHA under the leadership of Natalie Serrano, our new executive director, and so it's been, um, it's been great to be a part of that and to have uh, CFHA listeners and maybe some non-CFHA listeners out there to this um, to this awesome podcast, which I myself listen to. In my in my day job, um, the one that uh, where I get a paycheck, right. I <laughs> I have a couple of different hats that I wear, and that has uh, that has evolved through the years. So I am the uh, behavioral science director for the Worcester Family Medicine Residency, which is a twelve 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 residency program, and um, we have been growing our uh, behavioral health um, faculty within the residency so that we can have a much more uh, prominent role in caring for patients in our health centers alongside of our residents because so much of the teaching, bi-directional teaching, seems to happen with that collaborative care of patients. So we've been growing that. And um, uh, I also direct a postdoctoral fellowship. We have a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in um, in primary care psychology, and that may be some of what we talk about today related to workforce development. Right. Um, that is um, that fellowship is sort of twofold. So there's increasingly a number of different fellowships that have spawned over the last five years, even in 
um, in integrated care uh, practice, but ours is uniquely developed to both um, have people expand their skills related to um, integrated primary care, their clinical skills and program development skills, but also to learn about teaching. And so we dedicate a lot of the fellows time to being immersed in what is it like to be educated, um, what is the medical school education sort of philosophy and format. And so we immerse them with the residency class so they both can understand how physicians are educated and from there be able to um, tailor their educational offerings to physicians so that they really know their audience well because they've rubbed shoulders with them for two years. And so they're right. simultaneously part of the cohort, but also uh, but also a teacher in that capacity. So our fellowship really focuses on that. Um, and then I've been uh, practicing um, integrated care um, for, uh, gosh, hmm, 20 years now. And uh, <laughs> we could edit that part out. And, um, and then more recently, my passion and interest has grown in the area of clinician well-being. And I use that term very purposely, and we may even talk about that a little bit today with workforce yeah. development. So there's a lot of research out there on physician well-being and physician resilience and physician burnout. Um, and I really expand that and um, am sort of a squeaky wheel within our institution to replace the word physician with clinicians, because I think... Um, as we look at what is going to be required for, for effective primary care now and into the future, it, there's no doubt that it will be team-based. And mm -hmm. if we continue to use, you know, if we continue to parse uh, by discipline in any of these areas, we're just reinforcing that. And so, uh, so I use the word clinician very um, intentionally. And I think there's a lot of applicability to workforce development in terms of how do we build uh, jobs that have that are sustainable for all of our clinicians who are doing team-based care and right. how do we build them in a way that there's also some forward projection for advancement um, for team-based uh, for team-based care so that's sort of my newest area of, um, of focus and interest professionally so that's sort of like your past, present, and future. I, I think. Uh, uh, I think one of the things that you sort of I didn't have to ask you and, and date ourselves. You volunteered the information of 20 years in integrated care. So we'll edit that part out. But I'll just mention it when I ask you the question. Um, <laughs> from what you've observed in your experience in developing, let's say the the postdoc program that you described uh, and all of that. Uh, what have you seen as the arc of development of workforce challenges? And um, and I think there's still challenges, uh, but what would you say have been some of the successes so far from what you from where you started to where you are now? Um, so some of the successes. Um, well, I think one thing that is, you know, is sort of two-sided in terms of, you know, that I think we can see it as a success is that we probably have a workforce shortage in terms right. of really well-trained uh, behavioral health clinicians to be able to fill these roles and really, really well-trained um, other team members in terms of care managers or health coaches and and primary care clinicians, even even specialty care clinicians, or um, if we we'll, if we're going to keep the conversation focused to primary care, that's fine. But um, 
but obviously there's places where uh, behavioral health expertise is being um, used in other specialty medical settings, oncology, right. endocrinology, and pediatrics um, that are that are more specialty centered and outside of primary care. And so I think um, those those clinicians have more of a built-in consult model and even mm -hmm. primary care clinicians have sort of a built-in consult um, model and so depending on where you are that that may work fine and then right. as we were talking about sort of thinking about being more of a team member overall part of the primary care team where it's a little different to have your consult kind of embedded within that team as opposed right. to outside, you know, sort of going to the outside specialist. And so I still think we have um, a shortage of of really well-trained clinicians across that spectrum that we could just plunk in. And so we have a, still have a lot of on-the-job learning, which, right. um, you know, which in some ways is a, is a good problem to have because it speaks to the dissemination of this model and sort of the spread of this model. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, but we still have some challenges regarding, I think, how to effectively finance uh, workforce development. And, right. Um, so to be able to get really well-trained clinicians out there. I think the other success that I have seen, and I, I think CFHA is really uh, integral to this, is breaking down and having difficult conversations around breaking down guilds. And one of the reasons I love CFHA is that we can talk about this work and talk about um, the the challenges and the successes of this work without getting stuck in uh, in our specific disciplines. Right. Because once you get, once you start doing this work, sort of the letters after your name become less relevant. And I would it would include even MD, right? right. <laughs> like. Right. Um, they they do become less relevant, and I think it's one of the sort of demarcations of a successful and more mature integrated care program. And so CFHA, I think, provides a um, a really nice platform for different guilds to come together and be able to talk about this work. And I definitely have seen that um, in the last 20 years advance, where people are willing to sort of let go of a little bit of that uh, discipline identity and move right. closer towards their identity being as a primary care clinician. Right. And I think part of what you're saying that you've seen in the emergence of workforce is sort of uh, looking at an early stages of where we were sort of saying uh, psychologists or other mental health professionals becoming part of a team to provide these necessary services to now just sort of really coming to the recognition that uh, we are the team and my identity is uh, connected to the functions of what we need to do for the patient or the population. Is that is that sort of the arc that you've witnessed and where you are? Incredibly well said, Deepu, yes. Okay, so that's sort of where we are. And I know you spend a lot of time uh, sort of looking at the mental health workforce development and sort of especially one of the things that you uh, have going on at UMass is the uh, the postdoc program that you described. I especially like the fact that you just said, uh, you know, the letters after our name, even MDs, and I would also include DOs, uh, that mm -hmm. doesn't matter um, as far as we are part of the team. I know you guys are experimenting with and doing a lot of work in physician training or sort of getting physician 
workforce ready for integrated behavioral health and, uh, well, I guess really effective team-based care. Tell uh, us a little bit about that, how you came up uh, to do that work and where that work is right now. And, and, and what do you think, uh, where do you think it's going? Yeah. So certainly the model sort of predated my arrival at UMass and so can attribute a lot of that to um, Sandy Blunt, who is a, that's a, a sort of household name for people who are probably listening to right. this podcast. And so some of that, uh, the model really predated my arrival at UMass um, about nine years ago, specifically within, um, within our family medicine residency. And, and then I've just continued to sort of uh, tweak and refine and, and hopefully improve the way that we do that. I think the metric of success that I use um, for training our primary care clinicians in team-based care is that um, their, their willingness to, uh, to decline a job that is offered to them upon graduation that doesn't include a behavioral health clinician on the team. And wow. so when, <laughs> when they come back and say, that looks really interesting and this is what the job is and they'll pay me really well, but they don't have one of you guys. Um, and so I, you know, so I don't want to do that. Like that to me is, is, is one me really clear measure of, of success. Our third years, um, uh, graduating residents go out on these what we call swings uh, right. every year and they go to they do it a couple of times a year and our behavioral health postdoctoral fellows always join on these and it's everybody kind of crammed into a van going around to different ambulatory primary care practices in the region and looking at what they have to to offer somebody coming out of residency as far as a job and Oftentimes, it's not the behavioral health person that's asking the question about what is your, you know, what's your behavioral health presence on the team? What is the access to services like? It's one of the residents that's really asking that. Um, and so they, you know, they want to continue to practice in the way that they were trained, not just because it's easier in terms of not having to learn behavioral health, I actually would contend that they actually learn a tremendous amount a of behavioral deal, health. I would argue, right. Yeah, by working alongside their, um, and, and doing, you know, case for everything that they do alongside their uh, their behavioral health colleagues. It's just that they, they really understand the mind-body connection and they really understand sort of bringing the right expertise to right. the patient at the right time. And sometimes that is a, bi a biomedical perspective. Sometimes it's more of a psychological, social, spiritual perspective. Sometimes it's more, you know, the care manager, sort of what's happening within the community around social right. determinants. And so they graduate with that broader understanding of, you know, what we can do within the four walls of the clinic has, has never shown anything more than about 20% to do with patient outcomes on health. <laughs> that right. so much more of it, right, happens um, outside of those of the clinic and within people's communities. And, you know, and they understand that people's health and choices and, and behavior is so um is so much of a function of how what's going on in people's minds and hearts around right. what they value, what's important to them, how they're thinking about things. And so, um, yeah, so they want to go practice uh, on a team that's very similar to the team that they were, were trained in. Were trained in. And 
this metric of success that you talked about, like the willingness to not work uh, in yeah. a system that's not fully supported. Uh, how did you come across that metric? Because uh, I, I can't imagine that's what you started off with, but I assume that was a process of discovery. And I, I, I think that's a good, strong metric. Yeah. yeah it, I mean, really, it's um, it's so we do um, we get surveys uh, through ACGME for mm -hmm. our graduates. I think it's three years out, five years out. And they're around a whole bunch of different things that sort of ask how well prepared were you to do these different competencies? Um, and, you know, they vary from things around, you know, prenatal care, delivery. Right. Um, now there's, you know, medication assisted treatment is one of those um, credentialing items or competency items, behavioral health. And when I look at sort of our program and see what are the things, you know, we always sort of go to the problem. What do we need to do better at? What do we need right. to do better at? Um, consistently, what outcomes on that? to say like, what are we doing really well? What do our graduates leave here? And even three years out say, I was so well prepared in residency to do X. And I'm currently doing that is the other piece we pair it with. And so for our program, you know, I just saw the recent numbers, 100% of our grads, and it's been there, it's been like that for years, 100% of our grads feel, feel, feel the highest rating of, I'm absolutely prepared to do behavioral health when I graduate. And wow. I'm doing that in my practice um, for medication assisted treatment, Suboxone, like 100 percent of our grads leave ready to do that. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily think of that as this sort of core primary care competency. And in fact, right. it's not something that's on the credentialing list that you check off, like, you know, if you're getting credentials at a hospital. But like those are the bright spots. And that's what we're doing really well. Um, and so, like, how do we how do we celebrate that sort of as a unique aspect of our program in family medicine and what we're graduating residents to do? And so, um, so you know, so a lot of it's just sort of conversations with with the residents. Like, where are you going to where are you looking to practice and why? And I always asking, like, tell me about their behavioral health presence and. President. Um, and they don't, you know, it's it, this is the only residency they've gone to, right? So it's right. not like they're doing comparison. Like this is all they know. And then yeah. they sort of go out and say, well, like why don't you have this? This doesn't make any sense. Like this is this is how it should be, right. um, rather than seeing like this is the exception <laughs> in terms of how right. they're being trained. Yeah, um, so you're, and so you're they sort want of trained them up to be the new normal. Like you're saying, this yes. is the normal, and, yes. and then sort of going on from there. Excellent. Okay. And I, think, uh, like, I know. I was just going to say, like, the advocacy part, like, for the primary care doctors to be the ones who are advocating for, arguing, petitioning right. for funding for integrated care is a much more powerful sell than as behavioral health clinicians saying, pick us, choose us. We can do, you know, we can do something good. Yeah, um, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, you you sort of feel like the 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 drug dealer and the manufacturer <laughs> when you're trying to sell the the right. part of that thing. So that makes a lot of sense. And you know, one of the things that has received a lot of attention in workforce, uh, at least in the national scene, is the quadruple aim uh, focus on provider wellness. And I know one of the things that you mentioned in your intro and that you champion is 
sort of clinician wellness uh, for every member of the team. Um, looking at your work in that and advocacy uh, for that right now, uh, what are things uh, and uh, kernels or resources that CFHA members need to be aware of or our listeners can be aware of? And where would they go to learn a little bit more about that as they grapple with their own work, workforce development or are part of the workforce and are trying to figure out what is wellness for them? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot in that question. Um, and so I'm gonna, I just, if I could, I think one of, but a little plug in, one of, in terms of workforce development, one of the things that um, we are doing it at UMass is we got a small grant from the um, National Institute for um, Integrated Care, the, the group that's funded um, from UPenn, mm -hmm. to be able to develop some asynchronous online learning for actually PCPs. So we do at the Center for Integrated Primary Care at UMass have a longstanding history of a course offering for developing um, behavioral health workforce. But this is actually uh, designed specifically for primary care clinicians to be able to um, practice most effectively and efficiently, ideally in integrated care settings. Um, and also to be able to just expand their competencies around caring for behavioral health conditions, um, but knowing sort of how to use their how to use their team. So, um, so that wasn't a direct answer. It's probably a, you know the way politicians answer questions. <laughs> I know you asked me this, but this is what I want to talk about. So <laughs> I just wanted to um, kind of note that in the, in the area of workforce development that um, we still have work to do around preparing our behavioral health clinicians, but a lot of programs don't have what we currently have as far as a residency at UMass or what you may have in your program. And increasingly, um, I think a lot of residency programs are expanding what they offer for behavioral science. So it's not just, you know, a rotation on behavioral science and see what right. psychologists or social workers do. It's actually just interdigitated with everything that the residencies are doing, whether it's, you know, on the inpatient side or ambulatory side or didactic. So I think those models are expanding, but we still have a whole primary care workforce, right, that has been trained, that's still very, very active, if not the most yeah. active, um, and also in potential roles for advocacy that didn't grow up in this model and that right. don't have this. Experience, right. So we still have this gap and that will be there, I think, you know, until m many generations now who have been trained in the models that we're purporting, um, that they're not going to be sort of the senior level um, to be able to make these decisions within institutions or legislatively within their states or federally for many years. So we have that whole gap to fill. Right. So I think that's who we're really targeting and trying to address with um, our developing PCP course, which hopefully will launch next summer. Okay. Um, and part of that, too, is also helping, you know, primary care clinicians or administrators who are in the role of designing jobs. So mm -hmm. as we start to think about quadruple aim, one, um, you know, there's not a ton of evidence, but I think uh, because we haven't looked at that metric as much, we've looked at a lot of just team-based care, um, improve clinical outcomes, just team-based right. care, 
um, do anything as far as utilization or costs or hospital readmissions. But it's been fairly recent where we say, well, does team-based care actually create, right, happier, uh, happier clinicians? Happier workforce, yeah. Happier workforce. And so that is a new metric that I think is getting tagged on now to yeah. some of the research that's being done, but wasn't part of that first generation of research. And so we don't have a ton of evidence, but I think when you look at um, the system-based solutions for improving clinician um, meaning in medicine, sustainability, one of the things that's in there unquestionably is team-based care. Right. Um, I wrote about that in my most recent president's column, and um, and Atul Gawande, who's now the who's been named the CEO of this uh, joint venture with yeah. Amazon, um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan. You know, he's written um, extensively around team-based care too, like in the New Yorker and some of his other um, presentations. And so I'm hopeful that he sort of gets it, and uh, and. Yeah. You may see that in what what he develops, but part of why I think he gets it is is not just on the economic side, but really on the um, the meaning in medicine and the sustainability of jobs. And so, if we repeatedly put people in situations where they're being asked to take care of and attend to people's um, needs, that's a mismatch from what they were trained, educated, and want to do, it is a recipe for dissatisfaction. And so right. team-based care has been purported to be one of the things that can sort of help when you build systems, efficiencies around taking care of clinicians. I think the risk on the behavioral health side is that we become not only um, the, the person who deals with all of the stuff that, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, we're the people that hear the stories nobody else wants to hear and deal with the yeah. stuff that, um, you know, complicates uh, the, you know, sort of the chronic disease. And so we also de facto become the support person for the staff. For the and the <laughs> you know, I and agree. I always say, like, we don't get the well child checks. We don't yeah. get, like, your throat and I don't unless I really like go into a room and force myself in a well child like I don't get to hold babies I don't get to right. like you know sway and love and cuddle with cute little babies like that would that would break up my day like that, yeah. that would really help and our primary care colleagues get that so we need to you know so team-based care thinking about the quadruple aim just for primary care clinicians we're gonna hit a crisis point if we don't also that's why I intentionally use the term clinicians to say we need right. to be thinking about clinician well-being and not just having behavioral health clinicians sort of be there for all that ails you in terms of the primary care team and the primary care patients. And then you're going to have really depleted behavioral health clinicians. We need to have those jobs be built in a sustainable way as well. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, there was an article on family practice manager management uh, by, I think it came out of Frank Degree shop in Colorado. Uh, I think the article is titled, A Team-Based Care Model That Improves Job Satisfaction. And part of the thing uh, that they argued for is investing in the medical assistants, uh, enhancing their role, uh, and then which in turn enhances the physician's role and other team members' role. Uh, so that everybody is upskilled and satisfied. Um, yes. And I, I think that speaks to that. I, I think it also speaks to uh, the behavioral health workforce, their desire to be part of primary care. I think we're uh, willing to go above and beyond to be part of the team. 
And I think yes. that ha that has a cost. Uh, and yeah. I think uh, part of what you're advocating for, and I'm, I'm sure what CFHA stands for is uh, one, uh, uh, promoting what we do, but also protecting what we do. Yeah, yeah, very well said. And I think being a part of a community like CFHA can provide some of that buffer, right? If nothing else, desert, like normalize experience, share experience, share ideas. Um, and so having a, having a place to kind of come together um, in various formats, not just at the annual conference, but through, right, through this podcast, through other ways of connectivity, um, it really can be uh, a supportive, nurturing environment for clinicians. That's right. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and also yeah. giving us your experience and sort of the work that you're doing um, at your institution and also for representing CFHA so well and uh, sort of leading us into the successes and challenges of uh, what integrated care is moving towards. Yeah, it has not it has not been a boring uh, way to spend one's career, and I I think it will continue to be exciting and innovative. So, uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking me to do this. All right, and we're back. Uh, thank you, Deepu, for that interview with uh, Dr. Runyon, and thanks to Dr. Runyon. She is uh, aside from all her great work at UMass, um, she's the current president of CFHA. Um, and I can tell you personally, she's just an awesome person to work with, an awesome person, period. Just uh, I feel privileged to have had you know these last couple of years to work with her. So thank you so much, Tina, uh, for being there. And, and, and she's very approachable. So those of you who want to uh, reach out and talk to her, I mean, she'll talk to you. Um, and, and so you can walk up to her at the conference in a few weeks and say hello. She was, she's very, very human. Uh, it's a couple of notes real quick about that interview, Deepu, that I kind of jotted down. Um, you know, I I was astounded that the, in their post-survey analysis of their program, that residents, 100% of residents, indicated that they were prepped to engage behavioral health. Um, it, and I, I know that at the residency the programs residency I've been program. at who've been excellent, but I don't know that a hundred percent would say <laughs> that, <That's right. laughs> that they would be ready for that. So I thought that was astounding. I mean, I was, yeah. I was envious of that. <laughs> Holy envy. Holy, Holy envy. Holy, Holy envy. Fire and brimstone envy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I thought that was, that was outstanding. And that should be our goal, right? I mean, that that's, that's part of it. And I, I would flip that for, for behavioral health. And I would say, 100% of our behavioral health professionals should be feel uh, prepared to be part of a healthcare team and deal with medical issues just as much as behavioral health issues. Absolutely. That that would be our goal on that on this side, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a two-way lane, you know. Yeah. The other piece that I jotted down was this connection that she made between team-based care and physician wellness. And physician and resident wellness. And so, uh, you know, again, that tie, I think, is crucial. This is, integrated care is not just about putting mental health in another place. It's right. really a transformation of primary care into its ideal form, its ideal state of being. Yeah. And that ideal state includes people who are satisfied in their work, who feel uh, mission-driven, 
uh, uh, full of hope and uh, and healing that they feel like they can, as a team, provide for uh, those who come their way um, to fill the, the role that they fill. Because healthcare doesn't solve all the ills or all the issues related to health in the United States. It, it's just not, it's part of a bigger context. But in that context, to have wellness be a quality of that is, to me, it's interesting that that's directly tied to what integrated cares about. Yeah, uh, I do have a little bit of a worry, I must admit, about the 100% of behavioral health inspired physicians, uh, uh, what will happen to them in two and five and seven years? And where will that excitement and enthusiasm for the whole person work really be? And are they, to what degree are they at risk for cynicism, right? The losing the link to that inspiration, that excitement, that joy because we know about productivity demands and we know about um, depletion and the patient care responsibilities and trying to balance one's personal and professional life. So the good news is the, the residents that are coming out are coming out with a very um, full tank in their race car of inspiration and education and knowledge. But how, how will they really do once they're in organizations that may not remember to appreciate and support and nurture and celebrate and uh, revitalize the, the, the precious yeah, work that they're doing. And that don't have team-based care. Uh, for example, right. yeah. A, a little glimmer of hope that uh, Dr. Ranian talked about, though, was when they do interview, uh, a lot of these physicians are asking, do you have a team-based approach to primary care? Do you have a behavioral health consultant? or a behavioral health professional that's embedded into your primary care team. So there is some, hopefully the full tank of inspiration uh, inspires them to bring on policy and system level changes to at least argue uh, for what they experience. And another fountain of hope, uh, Dr. Runyon is training her trainees um, about wellness, self-care, mindfulness. Yep. And uh, hopefully those are lifelong professional tools that will serve them and their patients. Yes. Yeah, excellent. Well, uh, as usual, we are uh, running against our own clocks here. Uh, thank you to our listeners out there. We really appreciate the feedback. We've gotten lots of feedback actually recently. Uh, some great yes. there students from uh, Arizona State University provided some detailed feedback as part of a homework assignment. It was awesome. Hopefully we take your feedback and integrate it into what we do. Uh, most of the feedback was Naftali needs to shut up more and talk less. I have a hard time doing that. Dead to uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but thank you so much for listening. We're really encouraged by all the stories we hear uh, of you out there. And hopefully you're encouraged by, by hearing this and inspired to continue doing the great work that you're doing. Speaking of inspiration, you know that we always lead you out with a meditation, prayer, thought. And today, Jeffrey has the honor of leading us out. Thank you, Neftali. This is a uh the work of John O'Donohue, the great uh, Irish writer and poet, um, spent a lot of his time writing blessings, actually, extraordinary blessings. This one is entitled The Blessing of Your Work by John O'Donohue. May the light of your soul guide you. May the light of your soul bless the work you do with the secret love and warmth of your heart. May you see in what you do, 
the beauty of your own soul. May the sacredness of your work bring healing, light, and renewal to those who work with you and to those who see and receive your work. May your work never weary you. May it release within you wellsprings of refreshment, inspiration, and excitement. May you be present in what you do. May you never become lost in the bland absences. May the day never burden you, and may dawn find you awake and alert, approaching your new day with dreams, possibilities, and promises. May evening find you gracious and fulfilled. And may you go into the night blessed, sheltered, and protected. May your soul calm, console, and renew you. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. Um, uh, and, and usually we usually end we just end right there, just but right I, there. I, your, uh, your prayer meditation brought one more thing to mind. We have a listener in the at uh in wisconsin who works for the state department of health his name is ron prince so there's a shout out to ron prince and he sent us an email sent me an email about the podcast thanking us for the podcast thanking for us for the encouragement that the podcast is and noting that he feels like he wants to share it with his co-workers at the department of of, of human services who are working on the mat issues it he was responding to our MIT podcast, and he said how discouraging it is for them to work on an issue that is so difficult for them, and how the burnout issue is real for them, even though they're not clinicians. They're just doing statistics and managing uh, the state's efforts and all of that. So this is a shout out to Ron Prince and his colleagues at DHS in Wisconsin. May you be encouraged by Jeffrey's prayer, because your work has great value as well. Thank you. And we look forward to our next podcast at the conference in October in just a few weeks. We'll see you then. Thank you. Bye-bye.